This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning, everybody. I hope you. Uh I hope you all had a good evening, and welcome to the final portion of this program. Um, with us this morning is Barry Majid. Barry, I meant to ask you, am I pronouncing your last name correctly? It is Majid, okay. And uh, in a moment I'll uh, introduce Barry a bit more, uh, but I, I wanted to uh, just let you know um, that each of the presenters here this weekend are uh, sort of representing different traditions and it was something that we we didn't make a, a point of um, mentioning in the beginning for no particular reason but uh, it was it was uh, pointed out to me that uh, it would be helpful perhaps to let you know that what you're uh, receiving here this weekend is not only teachings from some wonderful teachers but you're getting uh, the flavor of different Buddhist traditions. So um, just going back to Friday evening, our presenter, Galen Ferguson, is from the Shambhala tradition, which is from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And then um, Saturday morning, we had Polly Young-Eisendrath, and she... um, has trained both in Zen and in Vipassana and continues to train in both and teaches from that perspective. And Sharon Salzberg, uh, she, although she has trained in both the Theravada and, and Tibetan Buddhist traditions, her primary uh, teaching is in uh, Vipassana and insight meditation and loving kindness, which comes from the Buddhist traditions of Southeast Asia. And now today we have... Barry Majid, who is coming from the Zen tradition. And um, Barry is a, is a Zen teacher, and he's also a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who uh, has been practicing in New York for many years. He received Dharma transmission in the Ordinary Mind Zen School from his teacher, Charlotte um, Joko Beck. And Barry has been... Uh, practicing both Zen and uh, psychotherapy for about 30 years. And he mentioned to me the other day that the lines are starting to blur between the two. Uh, He's the author of two books, uh, Ordinary Mind, Exploring the Common Ground of Zen and Psychotherapy. And as a few people have mentioned, uh, the title of his, his most recent book um, and it, if those of you who missed it, I hate to break the news, but it's ending the pursuit of happiness, a Zen guide. So, Barry, thank you very much for coming today, and uh, we look forward to your teaching. And just to let you know, this talk will go to about 10.30, then we'll have a short break, and um, all four teachers will uh, come up to the stage with Melvin McLeod and uh, take your questions. Please begin by placing your palms together and repeating after me. 
This Dharma, incomparably profound and minutely subtle, is rarely encountered even in hundreds of thousands of millions of ages. Now we can see it, hear it, hold and maintain it. May we completely realize the Tathagata's true meaning. been a very interesting weekend for me uh, to hear teachers from other traditions uh, talk about practice and about happiness. I don't get out much, so uh, it's, it's been especially interesting to hear uh, the view from the other side. Uh, but as a speaker here, uh, to follow uh, Galen, Polly, and Sharon, just to follow any one of them would be a tough task, but to follow all three of them, well, I hope you have a little empathy for my <laughs> dilemma as a speaker to produce something uh, new for you. I do want to try to uh, tell you some stories that convey the flavor of uh, Zen's particular approach to practice and the problem of happiness. Um, it happened that um, a little before I came up here, I received in the mail uh, a book uh, that was put together to celebrate uh, the 80th birthday of Mel Weitzman, who's been the Zen teacher at uh, Berkeley uh, Zen Center uh, for many decades now. And it was put together by a student, uh, Max Erdstein, and collected uh, tributes and memoirs from all of Mel's uh, Dharma successors over the years, of which I think they're 20-something now. And Max has also, uh, different times, been a student of mine and has come to uh, my sessions. Uh, but before he um, practiced Zen, he spent many years uh, studying Vipassana. And when he, he tells the story at the beginning of the book that when he first went to uh, sit with Mel at the Berkeley uh, Zen Center, uh, he wanted to really uh, know what the difference was between uh, Vipassana and Zen forms of meditation. And so he goes up to Mel and he says, you know, explains his background and says, please, uh, can you explain to me how is Zen different from Vipassana? And Mel says to him, I'm busy now, I can't tell you that. <laughs> and uh, Max says, okay. And so next week he comes back and asks again, Mel says the same thing. Too busy, I can't talk about that. Max is persistent. He goes back a third time, gets the same answer. And finally, a little light goes off, and he gets the idea that he's gotten the answer each time, right? 
not in the form of an explanation, but the form of a presentation of a, of a difference. So part of what we'll uh, look at uh, this morning is uh, how was that an answer to, uh, to his question? What was he conveying about uh, the difference between Zen and Vipassana? But since um, we're here to talk about happiness, I wanted to start with offering one more definition uh, that comes actually from uh, classical Greek, uh, a tradition that goes through uh, Aristotle and then uh, the Stoics. And their definition was that happiness is a sign of flourishing in animals the way flowers are for plants. Yeah? Happiness is the sign of our flourishing like a flower. And I always liked that definition, but it only, actually this weekend in the context of some of the things we've been talking about, uh, in terms of planting seeds and nourishing the growth and development of, of happiness. To ask, um, what kind of flower was that? And under what conditions was it growing? Because we can picture two very different kinds of uh, scenarios. Is the flower a flower that's being grown in a carefully cultivated garden? in which we are carefully weeding the soil, making sure we're providing all the right fertilizer, making sure we're watering it? Is it a flower that we're taking care of in an ongoing, meticulous way? Or is it a wildflower? Is it a flower that is just growing all by itself in the fields with no one paying any attention to it whatsoever? but it's flowering just being the product of what it is on its own. See, and that kind of flower is um, what we hear referred to uh, in the gospel where Jesus says, uh, consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil or spin, and yet they are clothed in a remnant more splendid than that of King Solomon. See, the lilies, just by virtue of being lilies, are already more splendid than the, the garments of the king. Now, I think that there is always in our practice a kind of dynamic tension between these two views of our flowering. One is, this, uh, is the side of nurturance, growth, and gradual development. And on the other side is the sense that the flower of happiness or realization, Buddha nature, is already fully present without any effort whatsoever. Right? Now, Zen tends, both, all traditions, I think, and all practices have to uh, have uh, 
some balance between these two uh, uh, positions. Probably Zen uh, tilts much more to emphasizing uh, the lily side, the side in which we need to see how our realization, our happiness, is not the product of any effort or any process, but is immediately available right here and right now. So I'm going to tell a few stories uh, to try to illustrate that in different ways. This one comes from the uh, autobiography of a Zen teacher, Uchiyama Roshi, contemporary Japanese Zen teacher who wrote a uh, very good manual uh, for practice called Opening the Hand of Thought. And he uh, told the story of his training as a young man in a Japanese monastery with a teacher, uh, Kodo Sawaki Roshi. And uh, this teacher, uh, Suwaki Roshi, was a very famous, very charismatic, powerful teacher. Big, tall, imposing kind of man who, uh, you know, just totally dominated any room he was in. And uh, Uchiyama describes himself as a young man as very frail, very shy, quite anxious, uh, became a monk at a very young age. And here he was studying with this famous, uh, powerful teacher. And <coughs> after um, he had been there for a few years, uh, he actually got a chance to ask a question. And uh, he got up his courage and said, Roshi, I'm a very anxious person, but if I really dedicate my life to Zen practice, if I do this wholeheartedly for the rest of my life, do you think it'd be possible for me to become a person like you? And Sawaki said, absolutely not. I was like this before I practiced Zen. Zen had nothing to do with it. Zen is useless. Now that uselessness of Zen, I think, is in fact its single most important attribute. And it refers to the idea of no gain that we hear in the Heart Sutra. The uselessness of practice, what does that mean? How, why would you do something for your whole life when you've just been told it's useless. See, it's, a, it's a, an important question. <laughs> you know, I mean, we always inevitably go into this for a reason. Uh, Uchiyama was very uh, sincere and direct about his reasons. He wanted to be transformed by his practice. And he was told, no, that's not going to happen. 
And in fact, at the end of the memoir, he said, you know, Roshi was right. It's 30 years later, and I'm still a wimp. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I want to make a particular claim about uh, that uselessness. And I want to maintain, uh, and we'll see if we can back this up as we go on, that the fact that Zen is useless is what makes it a religious practice. How does that sound? It's very uselessness is what makes it religious. See, because by religion, I mean something that we are doing totally and solely for its own sake to simply deepen our experience of our life as it is in which we experience something of reverence or awe or deep acceptance of the mere fact that We're here at all. And that that is not contingent in any way whatsoever on the content of our life or whether engaging in the practice changes our life. It says that our religious practice expresses who we are is who we are. It's not about our becoming something else. I want to read a short quote from Dogen. should be able to memorize it, but I will read it. Uh, Dogen was the founder in Japan of the Soto Zen school that uh, these two teachers, Sawaki and Uchiyama, belonged to in the 20th century. He uh, lived in the 13th century. And this is what he said about uh, Zazen, uh, which means sitting Zen. The Zazen I speak of is not learning meditation. It is simply the Dharma gate of enjoyment and ease. It is the practice realization of complete enlightenment. Know the Dharma emerges of itself, clearing away hindrances and distractions. Zazen is not learning meditation. It is not a technique or a method. It's not a means to an end. You see? I think that that in itself begins to give a very different flavor to a meditation practice, however you want to call it, uh, if you think you're doing it to relieve your anxiety, to cope with anger, to cope with stress, to relieve suffering, to be happy. Dogen would say, as long as you have any goal like that whatsoever in mind, you're not doing zazen. 
Zazen is not a means to an end. It's the Dharma gate of enjoyment and ease. The Dharma gate, dharmas are each moment. Means it is how you enter in to the full enjoyment and ease of each moment. Again, regardless of that moment's content. It is the practice realization of complete enlightenment. Practice realization in the original Japanese, I gather, is a single word. And what he meant was that when we sit down in this posture, in this way, that sitting itself contains everything, is the full expression of what it is to be human and alive. That it is how we manifest who and what we most deeply are. It's right there, immediately available, the first time you sit down. Nothing is lacking at all. See, and yet we don't intuitively or reflexively want to accept the experience of that very first sitting as a complete fulfillment of who and what we are. Story from a, another modern teacher, Katagiri Roshi, uh, in Suzuki Roshi's lineage. It was a nice um, biography of him that just was uh, just came out uh, by Dosho Port, and it's a nice uh, memoir of a, of both his teacher and his relationship as a student to his teacher. And in it, he describes. A student going to Katagiri and uh, saying, Whenever I get angry now, I try to go sit uh, zazen. And I, I, when I do that, it calms me down, and I'm able to really see what hurt me and what got me angry. And I really am able to process it much better as a result of that sitting. And Katagiri Roshi shook his head and said, don't use your zazen for that. <laughs> Again, it's a complete rejection or dismissal of the idea that zazen is a means to an end. Right? Don't use it for that. That may be a very good thing to be able to do. Find a way to quiet yourself down and look at the causes, the roots of your anger. But don't turn meditation into yet another psychological tool. See, and one of the reasons I maintain the Zendo as a place of religious practice where we, we're not a temple, but we have daily services, 
I wear a rakasu like this and we maintain a certain ritual and formality is that I don't want zazen to become one more form of self-improvement that everybody engages in. A zendo is not a spiritual health club, right? It's not a place to go get yourself in shape, you know, mentally and spiritually the way you do physically at the gym. It's not about that. Our practice may have all sorts of byproducts, but we don't do it as a means to an end. So if we're not practicing meditation as any form of technique, what actually are we doing when we sit there? Well, in Zen we also call meditation just sitting. Just sitting. Don't just do something, sit there. Yeah. Now, what makes that hard is that we find that we are never leaving ourselves alone. If I say, just sit, and give a basic instruction of just be in this posture, feel your body breathe, almost inevitably people start wondering, am I doing it right? But the whole point of setting up zazen as not a technique is you can't do it right or wrong. You can't do it wrong, you also can't do it right. A technique, right, a method, is something that can be done correctly or incorrectly. You can sort of get it or not, you can be uh, a novice at it and then do it a long time and practice it and then master it. What I'm trying to describe is creating a space in which there is no getting it right or wrong. It is just what it is. Yeah. A student came to me and said, I've been sitting a long time, but I feel like there's still so many obstacles in my practice. I'm restless, my knees hurt, I get angry, my mind wanders all the time. How do I deal with all these obstacles in my practice? And I told him, there are no obstacles in practice. There are no obstacles in this practice. See, all the things that he listed are simply attributes of his moment-by-moment -moment experience. He was automatically comparing that experience to how he wished it was going, right? 
He had in mind a sitting in which he was physically comfortable, his mind was calm, he was emotionally stable, and all these things were intruding and spoiling his practice, right? They were obstacles. So I wanted to tell him there are no obstacles. There's just this moment. There's no right or wrong about any of these things. But people come to practice because always they have some kind of agenda like that. People come for very interesting reasons. Uh, I had uh, one student who uh, would sign up for every monthly session that we uh, would conduct, but he would only show up uh, to about one out of three or four of them. Uh, and this last time, uh, he, uh, he finally told me what was going on. It turns out that uh, he's married, and uh, he's in the middle of having an affair. And the only way he can get out of the house and get away for a weekend is to tell his wife he's going for his, to a session. Uh, and so when he, tell, he signs up for session, you know, sends in the check, you know, has all the evidence, uh, then goes to meet his girlfriend. But once in a while, it doesn't work, and the girlfriend uh, can't get away from her husband, or something happens, and he's stuck, and then he has to come to session. <laughs> well, it gets him through the door, you know? <laughs> Once he's there, you know, he's got to deal with it, right? Eventually he sort of owns up to this whole scenario and then the session begins to work on him. But I think it's a wonderful story about aspiration <laughs> in practice. Um, I like to turn it into a little parable, though, and say his girlfriend's name was Samadhi. Uh, and uh, she only showed up sometimes. <laughs> you see, and then the other times he was stuck in uh, Sashin without the, uh, the goal that he had in mind. Samadhi is a kind of word for the kind of concentrated... Uh, clarity or calm or concentration that, you know, we, we say we want to be the object of our, our practice. And sometimes we can really get it, you know? I mean, uh, that's something you can get good at. Yeah. But, you know, you're not going to get good at it 100% of the time. And when, what happens in those bad sittings? You know, the ones that don't turn out the way you want, where you're left with a wandering mind, uh, where it just hurts, where you're bored, right? Where you're thinking the teacher is not as good as the other teacher down the block, or that you're not as good as the student sitting next to you, and you just can't get any of that crap out of your head, right? 
See, I usually uh, try to remind students that those sittings are probably much more important to their practice than the days when they come in and, you know, come on all blissed out you know, <laughs> and beaming, right? That's great. I'm glad you can have that, those days. But the real work of practice is sitting with all those things that we come to practice to get away from. Right? Where we're really left stuck, sitting still with every aspect of our personality that we, and our physical body that we don't like, that we came to practice to get rid of. In the Buddhist literature, you hear the word dualism uh, a lot. And it's often uh, presented in a way that seems very abstract. Uh, sometimes like the dualism of absolute and relative, or even the self and other. Uh, and it's not clear necessarily, well, what, how does that actually happen on the cushion? But the most basic dualism that we have to face in practice, is the self divided against the self. One part of the self being set up against another and calling it practice. Uh, a part that in the name of observation or becomes judgment. Uh, in the name of wanting to be spiritual, rejects the physicality of our bodies. In the name of being compassionate, wants to repress or deny our anger. In the name of being selfless, wants to learn to live without any needs of our own, without any need for, for love. So often we hear about how important it is to be compassionate, loving. I don't think we really acknowledge or hear enough about how important it is to be on the receiving end of compassion and love. I was uh, very gratified to hear in Sharon's uh, presentation yesterday that uh, she began with the meta exercises directing the happiness and safety and ease towards oneself first. See, because I'm a psychoanalyst as well as a Zen teacher, uh, a, lot of, I, a lot of my practice uh, is filled up with people who have read my books and want to have a, a therapist who is friendly to the idea of practice. And, and that mean, you know, it really means that I've ended up specializing in the psychoanalytic treatment of neurotic Buddhists. <laughs> it's a very interesting professional niche to occupy. <laughs> and... Uh, Unfortunately, uh, what often emerges, is it seems like these are people who have taken a vow to save all beings minus one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And a lot of what has to happen in the course of the treatment is I have to persuade them to start being, you know, bad Buddhists. Uh, they have to learn how to get angry again. They have to learn how to admit that they have needs. Uh, so often, practice gets perverted into a way of saying, I'm going to get to a place where I will be autonomous and I won't be hurt anymore by anything. Right? I'm going to become uh, pretty much the stone Buddha on the altar. Right? And uh, the problem with that idea is not that you can't do it. The problem is you can almost do it. <laughs> You know, you can go really a long way in the direction of uh, turning yourself to stone and trying to deny uh, very basic human needs. And you, the more you deny them, the deeper you think your practice is going. So it's a, uh, a very uh, subtly dangerous business we're in. In uh, my book, I've referred to uh, this as our secret practice, the secret practice of Buddhism. Uh, whatever we say, you know, our formal practices, whether it's zazen or mindfulness, just counting breaths, inevitably we have an unconscious underlying agenda where we're trying somehow to extirpate the parts of ourselves that we just don't know how to deal with, the parts that are suffering. And we want a relief from suffering, but inevitably there is a little voice in us that says we'll get rid of suffering by getting rid of our vulnerability or of our needs. And practice, if it's really genuine practice, takes us in exactly the opposite direction. It makes us more vulnerable, not less. It lets us admit to being dependent, vulnerable, mortal human beings. We were talking various contexts about the first noble truth uh, which is translated often as uh, life is suffering. There can be different variations on that. But I had the thought that if only Buddha had been uh, Greek, we could go back to the original root of suffering in the Greek, which is the word pathos. And that word has a spectrum of meanings. On one hand, it means suffering and things that befall us, generally of a negative nature. But pathos also means the whole range of emotion. Right? The whole range of feeling. And I thought it would be a very interesting way to rethink practice if we stated the first noble truth as all life is feeling. Right? 
And then it would be very clear that we're not in the business of ending feeling. Right? It sounds good to say we want to end suffering. But really, retranslate that because all life is feeling. And then we can say there's a ground and a complexity to feeling that we can learn to understand. We can learn to become wise about the nature of feeling. But we won't imagine that we're going to get to some realm that's free of feeling, right? The way we can imagine we're going to be free of suffering. In a certain sense, I've, I've often told my students, I think that uh, it would have been much more useful if the Buddha had just stopped with the first noble truth and said, life's for suffering, period. <laughs> End of story. Get used to it. <laughs> but, you know, he wouldn't have, everybody would have left and we wouldn't have been sitting here today. So he had to entice them a little bit, you know. You've you got to go along with people's curative fantasies for a while just until they're hooked, you know. <laughs> The fact is that because we're mortal, because everything changes, and time's arrow goes in only one direction, uh, we're not going to ever escape the reality of vulnerability and mortality and illness and death. We can come to terms with those things. We can become wise about them. But we have to watch out for enlisting a spiritual or religious practice and a curative fantasy of somehow escaping or transcending what it is to be human. So the practice that I teach, this practice of zazen, is a practice in which we leave everything alone. We sit and simply experience life as it's happening, manifesting in our body, in our mind, in this moment. And we'll do We'll have a period of sitting like that uh, in a few moments. Uh, but let's first, let me open it up to you for some uh, questions or reactions uh, to this way of uh, thinking about practice. And it uh, probably be a good time to stretch our legs too. So while we stand up, stretch, and then think of some questions.